Chapter Seven of Souls for Sale. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Souls for Sale by Rupert Hughes. Chapter Seven. The wheels ran with a rollicking lilt beneath the girl's body, throbbing likewise with a zest of velocity. Through her head, an old tune ran that she had often sung with the homecoming crowds on church picnics. I saw the boat go round the bend. The deck was filled with traveling men. Goodbye, my lover, goodbye. She was on a train going round bend after bend, and the train was filled with traveling men. Some of them, as they zigzagged along the aisles, swept her face and her form with glances like swift, lingering hands that hated to let her go. This was a startling sensation, a new kind of nakedness for her inexperienced soul. The eyes of the women flung along the aisle also widened and tarried as they recognized in her a something she had not yet found out, that she was very, very pretty, attractive, compulsive. She was like a magnet that had never met iron filings before, had never learned the mystery, and could not understand it as we think we understand what is merely familiar. She was plainly dressed and had never been adorned. Only her neatness kept her from shabbiness, but she had beauty and appeal, the appeal of a ripe peach grown in somebody's orchard, but thrust out over a wayside fence to tempt the passer-by. Some of the men who saw her did not care for peaches, or had had their fill of them, and regarded her with indifference, but others looked hungry, or at least betrayed an academic approval. Such of the women, as had no instinct of jealousy, were gladdened by her prettiness and her youth, and felt that she brightened the roadside and sweetened the air. Others saw in her arrival a danger, and suspicion narrowed their lids. They consoled themselves with the thought that she was wicked and worthless, an opinion which they could not know she shared with them. On the train, Mem had planned to do a bit of thinking, but after the first exultance of escape and the thrill of speed, she relapsed into despondency and fear, fear of everything and everybody. She had still to act, but she was a strolling player now with an ever-changing audience, and this gave her a new kind of stage fright. The only familiar companion was remorse. She could not run away from that. Running away was a new subject for remorse. She thought of herself as a convict, escaped breathless from a deserved punishment to a wilderness of uncertainties, as a trustee who has betrayed the confidence of a kindly warden and rewarded confidence with deceit. She had expected to find on the journey leisure for contrition and the remolding of her soul, but the world would not let her alone. Everything was new to her everything was a crowded film of novelty she knew the minimum of the outside sphere possible to a girl who had had any education at all she had never been on a sleeping car before she had read no novels except such sweetened water as the sunday school library afforded she had seen no magazines at home except the church publications and her girl friends happened to be infrequent readers of fiction Calverly had no bookstore, and the newsstand did little trade in the periodicals that are credited with the ruin of the young when the critics have time enough to spare from the theater and moving picture and the dance. She had never been to a theater or a moving picture. She had never danced even a square dance, 
not so much as a Dan Tucker, a Virginia Reel, or a minuet in costume. She had never ridden a bicycle or a horse, and had never been in any automobile except some old bone-shaker that drowned conversation in its own rattle. She had never gambled, or been profane, or even slangy or disrespectful to her parents. She had never seen a cocktail. She had never worn a low-necked, high-skirted dress. She had never seen a bathing suit or had one on. Girls did not swim in the river at Calverly. In fact, she had escaped all the things that moralists point to as the reasons why girls go wrong. Yet she had, as the saying is, gone wrong, utterly, indubitably. Yet no fast young man had led her astray, or so much as tried to lead her astray. She had never made the acquaintance of a fast young man. Her betrothed lover was slow and honorable and religious, everything a young man ought to be. But unfortunately for her, one of the things a young man ought to be, must be if he is a man, is passionate. Otherwise, he can never be a husband or a father, and a woman cannot be a good wife and mother if she lacks those fires which burn when they escape, and which no power has ever kept from occasional untimely escape. And so, on a Sabbath evening, the solemn young man to whom she was affianced had been somehow impelled by seeing through the window her parents kissing her good night to want to add his kiss to theirs. On the porch that frowned out the heathen moon, he had held her hand a little more straightly than was his wont. He had drawn her to him and moved toward her. There seemed to be volition in neither of them. They just floated together with a mysterious bewilderment. She had looked up in questioning surprise at the hot strength of his hand-clasp. He had looked down at her in questioning surprise at the unusual beauty of her shadow-blotted face. Not seeing her at all, she was somehow more beautiful than ever, since imagination had free sweep. And who can give laws to imagination? Their lips had moved together by the same amazing attraction— the hasty brushing of her mouth with his had been like the drawing of a match along a kindling surface, and he had been impelled to return for another kiss, a longer kiss, the strangest kiss that either had ever known. And then a strange, a terrifying, irresistible mood had imbued them both. His arms were suddenly like fierce serpents about her, ruthless with constriction. Her arms were serpents suddenly, they seemed to feel a necessity for becoming one. Their hearts were turned to a sweet, shivering, poisonous jelly. Their blinded eyes were clenched to shut out the world and shut in the heaven that lifted them as on the little wings of cherubim. Mem closed her eyes in a sudden return of memory like a re-experience. She almost swooned with the terror of remembrance, and her repentance seemed to flee, contemptible and ridiculous, as her reason had fled from that first visit of romance. She was astounded at herself. She felt a hypocrite even to herself. She was not really sorry. She could never trust herself to learn. In spite of all that had proved the folly and the evil of her mistake, she wondered if it would not always recur to her as somehow a divine madness, wiser far than any earthly reason. Her brain was scorched with a furious thought whipping through it like a laughing flame. A mocking Lilith seemed to be laughing at her holier self. 
a new being inside her soul was rejoicing that she had given herself in all ecstasy to elwood before he died even if he were damned for it it seemed well that he should not have left this earth and this flesh without knowing its paradise there was neither marrying nor giving in marriage where he had gone and their reunion would have been a bodiless greeting of ghosts if this sweet world had not overwhelmed them and their worldly frames with its supreme rapture elwood had never known anything but poverty hard work poor food none of the silk and satin none of the revelry and the wine and the splendor of the world he had known nothing rich but her love he had been caught at his self-denial putting a little of his earnings into the pitiful savings he had achieved he had been struck as with a great shell and shattered like the splintered glass that filled his poor crushed body he had died fighting against any outcry of protest or of pain he had died muttering something that nobody knew but she felt that he was stammering her name with his all obliterated lips and her body was one music her members chanted a triumphant song because his body had known the symphonic music of her love then the rhapsody died away the lilith vanished from her mood and the little gray puritan named remember came back to the profane shrine of her soul aghast incredulous revolted romance had turned to a gargoyle of grotesque and obscene ugliness she could not believe herself or trust her own profoundest face again she was afraid and felt herself condemned to destruction she was a scapegoat going out into the wilderness but capable of sudden frenzies of pride in her burden of sin incapable of shaking it off afraid of being lonely without it she returned slowly from the blind voyage of her soul into the invisible and wondered what had passed before her eyes in the long interim she was learning to know herself and in herself to know humanity her ignorance had been abysmal to those who can believe ignorance beautiful it had been ideal there was peace of a sort in those sheltered canons but now she was climbing the mountains the crags she would see strange snows strange flowers exquisite deserts smothering edens the clanking uproar of the entrance into kansas city filled her ears and drove away the music of the fiends factories warehouses freight trains roundhouses warning bells at street crossings where watchmen stood with flags before long bars all the usual noisy bustle of approach to a large town assailed her the train seemed to hurry though it went more slowly it was the plenitude of objects of interest that gave it the illusion of speed as it is in the passage of a life mem had never seen a great city and this metropolis had a tremendous majesty in her eyes some of the passengers from eastern points were getting off and she was fascinated to see how the porter whisked broom their coats and hats and palmed their tips with an almost dancing rhythm one of the portly women passengers whose voice had outclicked the wheels asked the porter how long the train would stop and when the diplomat said eight minutes miss she made a loud declaration of her intention to stretch her legs others made ready for a breath of air and so did mem who was spying and eavesdropping on everybody picking up what hints she could to disguise her ignorance of travel and appear as a complete railroader the passengers choked the straight corridor along the row of compartments and mem took her place in the line 
one of the doors opened and framed a tall and powerful young man with a peculiarly wistful face his eyes brushed mem and he lifted his hat as he asked her pardon for squeezing past her he knocked at another steel door and called through oh robina better come out for a bit of exercise while he waited some of the passengers were twisting their necks to watch him and nudging and whispering to one another when the door opened and robina stepped out there was such a sensation and such a boorish staring that mem turned to look a young woman of an almost dazzling beauty came out smiling and bareheaded she noted the yokelry in the corridor and her smile died she stepped back into her stateroom and when she reappeared she wore a large drooping hat and a thick black veil i envy you the privilege of the veil the young man said mem could not hear her answer for the passengers began to move out and she was carried forward with them to the steps and the station platform into a morass of handbags and red-capped negro porters she escaped the tangle and found a clear space for her promenade it gave her extraordinary exhilaration to be in a strange city it was cathay to her mem walked up and down the platform as if her feet were winged there was a delightful frightfulness about wondering what she would do if the engine started suddenly she would like to run and swing aboard like a professional trainman when she saw that the engine had unlinked itself and departed into the distance beyond the cave of the station she felt safe enough to explore all the way up to the baggage car the baggage men and mail crew looked at her with that new way these foreigners had of looking at her and she turned back the other passengers trudging up and down stared at her the men especially all except the tall young fellow with the veiled lady the rest were a funny lot bareheaded or in travelling caps she noted how they followed the tall young man and commented on his partner but she could not catch their words some of the strollers bought things to eat from boys who carried baskets of oranges chocolate chewing gum and cigars mem felt a longing to buy something for the sheer sport of buying but she had no money for extravagances still when she saw a newsman with a cargo of magazines she could not resist the appeal she would charge it off to education she went so far as to buy two magazines devoted to the moving pictures she had the curiosity of bluebeard's final wife concerning that forbidden closet as she was picking out the exact change from the small money in her purse one of the magazines slipped from under her elbow and fell to the ground she turned and stooped to recover it her hand touched a hand that had just anticipated hers she looked up quickly and her head knocked off the hat of the man who had tried to save her the trouble of picking up her magazine their noses were so close together that he seemed to have only one cyclopean eye each thinking that the other had the priority both stood up with a nervous laugh she saw that the gallant was the tall youth who had crushed past her in the corridor his face vanished from her sight as he bent again to pick up her magazine and his hat then his face came up again like a sun dawning across her horizon his eyes beat upon her like long beams there was a kind of pathos in them but also a great brightness which like the sun he poured upon millions alike but mem did not know this she felt warmed and healed and she bloomed a trifle as a rose does when the sun gilds it meanwhile with great calm and as much of a bow as he could make without a sense of intrusion 
the young man solemnly offered Mem his own hat and laid her magazine on his head. Then both of them laughed as he corrected the automatic mistake of his muscles. He blushed hotly, for he was not used to such blunders. Mem found an amazing magnetism in his smile and in his eyes. She did not know that that sad smile of his was making a millionaire of him. He was selling it by the foot, thousands of feet of it. His smile was broad enough to circumscribe the world, and his eyes had enough sorrow for all the audiences. He did not take advantage of the opportunity for further conversation, but bowed again and turned back to the waiting Robina, leaving Mem in a kind of abrupt shadow as if the sun had gone under a cloud. Robina was evidently not used to being kept waiting. She had had little practice. She resented the slight with such quick wrath that Mem could hear her protesting sarcasm, a rather disappointing rebuke. Don't hurry on my account, Tom. So his name was Tom. All that grandeur and grace, and only Tom for a title. Robina's voice was not magnetic, but then she was not selling her voice. Mem was in such a flutter that she dropped her purse, the coins popping about like cranberries. Robina saw the catastrophe, but she had seen women drop things on purpose when men were near, and she held Tom's arm so that he could neither see the disaster nor lend his aid again. As Mem knelt and plucked up a penny here, a quarter there, two young girls assailed Robina's prisoner with shameless idolatry. She paused, kneeling and listened. One of them rattled on. Oh, Mr. Holmby, we knew you the minute we laid eyes on you. You're our favorite of all the screen stars, and, oh, dear, if we only had our autographed albums with us. You got no photographs with you, have you? The other girl broke in jealously. Oh, course he hasn't. What you think he is, a freak in a museum? But couldn't you, wouldn't you, send us one apiece? I'll give you the address if you'll lend me a pencil. Tom was indomitably polite, and besides, it was bad business to snub an admirer. He was actually about to write their addresses in his notebook when the conductor's long far call, All aboard, gave Robina an excuse to drag him away from the worshippers. One of the girls groaned. He got away, darn it. The other, in an epilepsy of agitation, wailed, Say, looky, that lady under the veil is Robina Teal. Gee, and we didn't recognize her. Thus the Greeks were also stricken with a panic of reverence when the gods came down to earth. But Mem did not know or worship these gods. She had only a vague impression of what was going on as she snatched at the last of her available coins and ran to the train. The porter had already put up his little box step. The loss of any petty sum meant a privation, but her regret was swallowed in her vivid realization of what it would have meant to be left there in that town. She was panting hard with fright when she sank into her place, and the train was emerging from the retreating walls of the city before she felt calm enough to examine her magazines. On the cover of one of them was a huge head of Robina Teal, all eyes and curls and an incredibly luscious mouth. Remember, had never heard of her or seen her pictures, because her films were great feature specials, too expensive for the villages. In the body of the magazine was a long article about her and another about Tom Holmby. This was not so amazing a coincidence as it seemed to Mem, 
for both Rubina Teal and Tom Holby had press agents who would have been chagrined if any motion picture periodical had appeared without some blazon of their employers. Mem stared longest at the various pictures of Tom Holby. She found him in all manner of costumes and athletic achievements, and she read the rhapsody on him first. Having never seen a moving picture of anybody, she had never seen his. She had never seen a still picture of him either, because he was not as yet important enough to be starred, and only such greedy pantheists as the young girls on the platform were as yet aware of him. Mem was dumbfounded to realize how ignorant she was. Here were people so important that people stared at them and begged for their pictures, while magazines published glowing tributes to them. And she had never heard of them. Now that she saw him in print, her heart fairly simmered with the thrill of her encounter with him. It was as if she had knocked the hat off King David as he bent to pick up her heart for her. She forgot for a long while that she was a respectable widow, of a very poor sort, for it came to her in an avalanche of shame that she was neither respectable nor a widow. But she was a fugitive now from her past and from such thoughts, and she caught up the magazines with a desperate eagerness, as if they were cups of Nepenthes. End of chapter 7 Recording by Deanna Beauvais